0: I'm Darrell Bruggenk, and welcome to our newest episode in the No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Managing Soil Biology for Faster Crop Residue Breakdown, is being brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. If this is your first time listening, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to TopCon Agriculture for sponsoring today's episode. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping to data management, TopCon Agriculture offers a total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit topconpositioning.com growing solutions to learn more about how TopCon agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. Residue is both a friend and foe of no-tillers. Residue contains valuable nutrients that can lead to lower levels of applied fertilizer. The life in the soil benefits from the residue you leave in the field, and that residue also acts as protection for soil during rainfall events. On the flip side, it can interfere with the placement of seed in the soil and can be a hindrance to proper seed-to-soil contact. Getting that residue digested properly is beneficial to no-tillers. Today, Doug Miller of Midwest Biotech offers us a fascinating look at the science behind the soil biological activity necessary for residue breakdown. Let's join the agronomist from Erie, Illinois as he starts this No-Till Farmer podcast episode explaining the components of residue that no-tillers need to deal with.
1: Three main components of plant residue that we're gonna worry about. The the biggest one in terms of volume is typically cellulose. Uh, They tend to be relatively large molecules. Um, They're unbranched, but that's where most of the energy comes from that you're getting out of feed value and silage, other residues, plant matter that might be fed. That's also the source of the energy for ethanol production. Uh, And it's one of the biggest components that you're breaking down if you're decaying residue in the field. Uh, breaking down cellulose is, is not terribly hard. That's not usually the issue. Cellulose has a uh, more or less a cousin called hemicellulose. Chemical nature is a little bit different. They tend to be shorter molecules, but they're branched. And the hemicellulose provides a network that holds together the cellulose and the other components within the cell walls. So uh, those two components are where you get most of the energy and ethanol production, a lot of the feed value. And it's also going to be most of the source of the residue that you're breaking down in a a decay process in the field. Uh, The toughest part is the lignin. That's the third key component. Uh, Lignin is a very complex polymer. It's it's a very ugly, long, complicated, dense chain of atoms strung together to to form these molecules. And and because of its density, it's very difficult to break down. Its value is it, it provides a great deal of strength. To the plant and, and so the toughness of a stalk and, and ability to stand up over the season especially after you set years on corn or, or heads on wheat uh, comes from the lignin uh, the cellulose and hemicellulose tend to set in the plant earlier in the in the vegetative growth and the plants accordingly are, are more flexible and pliable and, and can grow later in the season it starts to form the lignin in the open spaces in the cell walls and you can think about it sort of as the rebar in concrete. It provides the strength and stability. That also means that it's very, very difficult to break down. Um, In an ethanol plant, the lignin represents material that simply is not gonna yield very much alcohol. It's more or less used to fuel boilers and generate steam, but if we could break down the lignin part, you'd get a higher fuel yield from from an ethanol plant. Uh, In livestock feeding, it's not digestible in ruminant animals. So it represents more or less a loss in feed value, if if we could find ways to break down the lignin. Uh, A lot of the seed companies now are producing BMR or brown midrib corn and sorghum varieties that are bred specifically to have less lignin content. So you have more digestible content in in forages. And so by getting rid of some of that lignin, you improve the feed value. And uh, in decay, The lignin often represents the toughest part of corn stalks or or other residues and uh, often gets the blame for things like punctured tires and plugging up planting equipment because it it makes the stalks tough and and hard to break down. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but these are the three main components. In terms of their percentages in different types of residue, the cellulose and hemicellulose are the big pieces. They represent the largest shares. Corn has a fair amount of lignin in it, but not nearly as much as other types of residue. Uh, Wheat has almost twice as much lignin. And so on a a volume basis, on a per ton basis, wheat uh, for one is harder to break down than corn stubble because uh, it's got this more tougher material that that breaks down slower than the the, uh, cellulose and the hemicellulose components. Uh, Rice, in addition to having a lot of lignin, has got silica in the hulls and other places that make it more abrasive. So for years, people burned rice straw as the best way to get rid of it. Now, you can't do that in all areas, and so there are problems with decomposition. Uh, Warm season grass, not the hay, but the residue. If you let it die off or you kill it, uh, the residue that's left has a lot of lignin in it. The stalks are very tough. We've run into folks in different parts of the country who've been convinced that they can improve their organic matter in their soil by adding shredded newsprint and and the folks that have actually done that Um, that is a source of organic matter if you get it broken down the the problem is one it's got a a very high lignin content Uh, essentially newsprint by itself has the same chemical properties as putting out uh, sawdust or or chunks of hardwood in in the field so it, it breaks down very slowly it's very tough material and so it's gonna be out there a long time before it's decomposed. So that, that's usually a poor choice for, for a source of organic matter in, in a field situation, just because it's very difficult as, uh, because of this lignin content. Uh, corn causes trouble mainly because of its volume. There's so much residue. Uh, by itself, it, there are tougher residues in terms of their chemical composition, but it, it's the volume of corn residue that causes the problem. In terms of the decay microbes, uh, it's the microbes in the soil that do the decomposition and, and break the residue down into its chemical components so we can return nutrients to the soil, and form organic matter and, and uh, have all the benefits associated with, uh, with the decayed residue. Uh, there are three main families of microbes that are involved. Now the, Actually, the bacteria are a secondary decay organism. We we hear a lot about bacteria when it comes to forming soil structure and converting uh, nutrients over to forms that plants can use through nitrification. Uh, Nitrosomonas and and nitrobacter are the two key uh, bacteria families for nutrient conversion. But in in terms of decay, the bacteria really take a back seat. They're, They're a secondary set of organisms. Uh, It's your fungal species, and uh, a higher form of bacteria known as actinomycetes that really do most of the decay work, and it's not just one type of fungus or one type of actinomycetes, but there are actually many, many different families, and then within each family, there can be several species, so we're talking about dozens and dozens and dozens of different types of microbes. It's not just one specific microbe that does the work but but there are lots and lots of different types some of them are, are actually visible to the eye if, if you have a compost pile in the backyard for example or you've got a spot in the field where you've had residue decaying uh, in a clump and you open up that pile near the surface you'll you'll see sort of fluffy gray cotton-like groupings or colonies and and those are the are the fungal species at work uh, they'll work near the surface. And uh, you can actually see those. Uh, the actinomycetes have are, are fibrous in nature, and if you open up the center of the pile, they tend not to work near the surface, but but uh, more within about four to six inches from the surface. And you'll see sort of like spider webs or, or filaments running through the pile, and and those are the actinomycetes. Um, anytime you see uh, soil that's been disturbed and you get that fresh earthy smell, that's that's the odor or aroma coming from the actinomyces. Uh, if, if you have that aroma, then you know they're present and they're active. Um, the bacteria are invisible. They're microscopic. But anytime you open a compost pile and you feel heat generated, it's from the bacteria. Uh, there are different types of bacteria that work at different temperatures. The the lower temperature activity comes from the bacteria that generate the heat as the temperature warms, those guys die off and they're replaced by different types of bacteria that, that can uh, work at higher um, temperatures. So there are lots and lots of different species of, of uh, these microbes. Uh, they're all working together, but the most important ones are the, are the fungal and the actinomycete species. Um, They're also the the groupings that are most disturbed by tillage. So uh, one of the things that you'll see um, occur is is that uh, there's a trade-off in terms of tillage when it comes to residue decay. There's an initial bump you'll get from tillage mixing the soil. Uh, So for example, if you run a chisel plow through corn residue, Uh, you'll typically get a faster initial decay because you're mixing the soil with the residue and exposing more of that residue to the microbes that are in the soil. Um, That advantage doesn't last, however, because the tillage does disrupt the microbial colonies, especially the fungus. And so by disrupting them, you'll get less decay longer term through the decay process. And, And so typically, tillage, although it provides an initial bump, is, is going to uh, actually disrupt the decay process. So that's one of the advantages the no-till guys have in, in decaying residue once, once they get the system working and you've got uh, very active soil biology uh, in the field. So there, there are lots of these guys working. Uh, the actinomycetes and the fungi do most of the heavy lifting and the bacteria are there to sort of clean up. How do they work? As soon as you um, have residue in the field, combines through, it's more or less like opening up the buffet line for the microbes. Uh, They're going to multiply very rapidly and uh, start to work in seeking out carbon, uh, basically as their main fuel source. Uh, Like any living body, just like us, or if you're increasing the size of a livestock herd, as you add numbers, you're adding carbon because they're carbon-based entities. There are other biochemicals required for life. We all know we need protein and and, uh, all sorts of other things that basically are nitrogen-based compounds. And so in addition to the carbon, you're gonna need nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, your other micronutrients. Nitrogen is typically the the limiting uh, nutrient in addition to carbon. And, And we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But as the microbes multiply, and they can multiply very rapidly. A single bacteria cell within a few days can multiply to be several million. So the the, uh, decay process ramps up very quickly under the right conditions. And we'll talk about the conditions here in a moment. But uh, if there's enough moisture and enough temperature, the, the microbes multiply in the soil, swarm over any of the residue that's at or touching the soil surface, The microbes are going to view that again as as sort of a buffet, it's open season and and they're going to seek out the carbon and they're going to use that carbon to multiply and and increase their numbers and accordingly break down that residue as as they go about their work. Um, They will need those additional nutrients and that can be a problem as, as we'll talk here shortly. The carbon that's released from the residue. Two-thirds of it is basically belched out by the microbes and released to the atmosphere. It's only a third of that carbon in aerobic decay that's returned back to the soil, first as part of the bodies of the microbes, and then later, as they die off, it becomes part of the the soil chemistry and and contributes to the organic matter in the soil. So it's only a smaller fraction of the carbon in the residue that's actually returned. Most of it's released as CO2 back into the atmosphere. But once that decay process is finished, the microbes start to die off, and then they release their nutrients, the carbon, the nitrogen, the other things, back into the soil, and then all of those nutrients are available for crop production uh, later in the year or for the next season. So that's the process, and what we want to do is talk a little bit about this idea that the, the nitrogen has to come from somewhere. Um, In addition to carbon, the microbes are going to need about uh, one pound of nitrogen for eight pounds of carbon used in this growth and reproduction process uh, for decay. And if there's not enough nitrogen in the residue, the microbes are going to find it somewhere. And so they're going to latch on to nitrogen that's in your soil, leftover fertility from the previous year. It might be in the soil organic matter as part of the uh, mineral profile of the soil, wherever it's from, if they're going to keep growing and multiplying, they're going to need that much nitrogen to keep supporting their growth. And if it's not available in the residue, they're going to go and latch on to it from these other sources, and it becomes immobilized or unavailable for crop growth. And that's one of the problems that's, uh, that's very common, especially in corn production, because you've got a residue that's relatively short in nitrogen to begin with. And if, if they're tying up or locking up nitrogen from these other sources, it's not gonna be available for cover crop use or for the next crop until you get that decay activity completed. When the decay activity is just starting, uh, any nutrients available in your field are, are gonna be uh, there and, and not immobilized. But if the residue's short on nitrogen and as the microbes multiply and ramp up and they're building carbon into their cell walls. They're also gonna need proteins and these other biochemicals for their own life systems. They're gonna take the nitrogen from the residue first, but they're also, if they're short, gonna latch onto it wherever they can. And those nutrients that were previously available for crop production in the field are gonna disappear because they're locked up and immobilized by the microbes. So as the decay activity ramps up, the amount of available nutrient is gonna decline until you reach the peak of that process and the the maximum amount of nutrient is immobilized or unavailable. Once you get past that peak decay activity and things start to slow down, the microbes die off, they release those nutrients, including the nitrogen, back to the soil. It's then available for plant use and that process is known as mineralization. Bottom line is, uh, is if you're short on nitrogen and other nutrients in the soil, and it's typically nitrogen that's the, the limiting factor, um, you wanna get this process done as soon as possible. So you don't have these uh, nutrient unavailability issues when you're trying to raise the next cover crop or the next cash crop. And so the faster you can complete the decay activity, the better off it
0: is for your nutrient management system. We'll get back to Doug in just a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. From planning to precision machine control, Norax boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, Topcon Agriculture offers the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4-hour nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit topconpositioning.com growing solutions to learn more about how TopCon agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. Doug is providing a fascinating look into the science behind residue breakdown, and I found it interesting that while tillage might give a short-term bump to residue breakdown, it it actually hurts the populations of microbial colonies, especially the fungi necessary for sustained residue breakdown. That gives no-tillers with an active soil biology the advantage when it comes to breaking down residue and benefiting from the process. Let's pick up Doug's conversation again with an explanation of the factors that will determine how quickly residue breakdown occurs. Later, Doug will address the level of nutrients you can expect to return to your soils for future crop usage, and he will talk about products that can help accelerate residue breakdown.
1: Three key factors determine how fast that residue decay occurs. Carbon-nitrogen ratio is is usually your best predictor for the speed or the rate of decay of of any crop residue, corn residue or others. Um, Temperature and moisture are also extremely important and we'll talk about those in a moment. But for now, the the carbon-nitrogen ratio um, is how much carbon I have relative to the amount of nitrogen in in the residue. Almost all plant residues have roughly the same amount of carbon, it's 40%. So if you look at corn stalk laying in the field, it's about 40% carbon. See a wheat straw laying there or soybean residue, uh, they're all about 40% carbon. The nitrogen content varies. So some residues have more nitrogen than others. If you talk about red clover residue, so you cut the hay and instead of baling it, leave it there to decay, um, that has relatively high nitrogen. So it's got a carbon-nitrogen ratio of 20. Um, For decay purposes, what we want to target is somewhere between 20 and 30 as being ideal. Uh, The maximum decay rate occurs about 25 to 1. So if your residue or what you're trying to break down has less carbon relative to nitrogen, its carbon-nitrogen ratio is less than 25. Uh, those materials are going to decay very rapidly and you're not going to have any problems. So things like red clover uh, residue, beef manure by itself without bedding uh, has carbon-nitrogen ratio 17 to 1, so the manure by itself is going to break down. Where you run into trouble with beef manures is if you got a lot of bedding in it, corn stalks or, or straw or other things that were used as bedding. That increases the amount of carbon relative to nitrogen, and that's when that manure is slower to break down. Uh, as we move up the list, we, we get into things like ryegrass covers. So if you spray it with glyphosate, kill it off and, and leave the cover there, um, that's 36 to 1. It'll decay a little bit slower than the clover, but not as slowly as things like corn residue, which is 60 to 1. Uh, small grain straw, wheat, oats, and rye uh, tend to run between 70 and about 100. Uh, Again, the carbon content's the same, it's just that the small grain straw tends to have less nitrogen relative to corn or relative to clover. And since it's the microbes seeking out the carbon to help multiply their numbers, but also requiring nitrogen, uh, if they run short, it's going to take them longer to do the job. Basically, the microbes themselves, if you look at the bottom of the list, are built on an eight to one basis. For each eight pounds of carbon that goes into building microbe cell walls, you need about a pound of nitrogen for the protein and the other biochemicals required for life. So if if you're working with something like rye straw that's 10 times as much carbon, unless they have another source of nitrogen, they're not gonna ramp up their activity and multiply very fast, and the decay is gonna occur much more slowly. So that's why the carbon-nitrogen ratio is probably the most important determinant for how quickly uh, you're going to decay residue. Uh, We talked about newsprint a little bit earlier. Um, Newsprint's high in lignin. Its carbon-nitrogen ratio is also about 580 to one. So you're talking about starving your microbes. If you're trying to break down newsprint, it's basically got the same carbon-nitrogen ratio as hardwood. Uh, so if you take wood chips and throw them out in the field, they're going to break down at about the same rate. There's very little nitrogen, so in order to break that material down, the nitrogen is going to have to come from somewhere else. You're either going to have to apply it or it's going to be locked up from soil sources and unavailable for crop growth. And so people that we've known that have used things like newsprint as a way to supplement through organic matter find that stuff lasts out there for years and years and years mainly because the decay process has been slowed and it also is gonna cause nutrient tie up problems and, and starve the crop while you're trying to break down those things. Um, sawdust by itself has a carbon nitrogen ratio of, of uh, 200 to one. So if you've ever done any work in the field and left sawdust uh, as, and just left it there as residue, you'll notice that sticks around for a while as well. Not standard practice, not recommended, but it basically comes down to how much carbon you have relative to nitrogen to determine how quickly things break down. Um, the agronomists have worked on statistical models based on actual observed decay rates in the field. And then from that, you can roughly estimate how fast you would expect residue to decay. So. For the carbon-nitrogen ratio, we can look at how different crops would decay based on expectations. So what I've done is based on an average temperature of about 65 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, not too warm, not too cool. Um, A fairly moist situation where you've got about two inches of water available in the soil per week. Um, Depending on the different residue, you're gonna have different decay rates. The blue line wheat straw has a high carbon nitrogen ratio of about 80, so it's gonna be much slower. And after about 40 days in the field, you're only gonna break down about 40% of it, even under ideal conditions where you've got a pretty good temperature and and plenty of moisture available. Uh, Corn has less carbon relative to nitrogen, so the bacteria are gonna be able to ramp up faster, work faster on the residue, break it down more quickly. And and so after about 40 days under those conditions, you'd get about 60% of your corn residue, and then rye crop cover, uh, because it's it's got relatively more nitrogen, you'll get about 80% of that in 40 days. So depending on the residue you're trying to break down, um, it, it really is is determined by this carbon nitrogen ratio and how much nitrogen is available to support the life activity of, of the microbes involved in the decay process. Uh, corn residue is present in much higher volume than wheat residue, but because of this lower carbon nitrogen ratio, it actually decays faster than wheat straw. And that's one of the reasons, for example, we were talking a little earlier about situations where you've got double crop soybeans coming in after wheat. Uh, If you don't get that straw distributed evenly and you leave a mat behind the combine, It's not unusual to come back after the beans have emerged and and see variations in height and uh, crop quality. Right in that straw mat, the beans had a tougher time emerging. There might be allelopathy effects where the residue is actually having a negative impact on the growth of the plants. Uh, Plus you're gonna have nutrient issues right in in that uh, matted area. Uh, Out away on the ends of the head where you didn't have the straw building up, uh, usually beans are gonna be taller more robust, better colored because of the nutrient availability. And, and so that's just one evidence of the impact that that residue can have on the next crop that's growing. Um, wheat straw being very difficult to break down and, and it takes longer can, can cause a lot of troubles, especially in a, in a double crop situation like that. Second factor that really is important is temperature. The warmer the temperature in general, the more decay you're going to have. Uh, bacterial and microbial activity in the soil increases by about a factor of two for each 10 degree increase in temperature. Um, Of course if it's freezing or low temperature you're not going to have very much decay. So if if we put in a 32 degree temperature here you'd have a flat line right across the bottom indicating that there's nothing going to decay. As you increase the temperature you're going to have more decay. So what we've got here is a situation with moderate Uh, moist conditions for corn residue and as we move up the line from an average 50 degree temperature where you'd expect to decay about a third of the residue in a 40-day period, if that temperature goes up to about 65 degrees you're going to get close to 60% of it decayed in that same 40-day window and if we had an extremely warm period like we're experiencing right now where your average temperature might be closer to 80 Um, It's hard to sustain that over a 40 day period, especially in the fall, but if you could, you'd get about 80% of that residue broken down in in about a six to seven week period. Um, So the warmer it is the better until you get to about 90 or 95 degrees. And at that point, uh, the microbes start to slow down and and if it gets really warm, they'll die off and they won't be active. So uh, usually within the range of temperatures we're working with in the fall, um, warmer is better. If it gets too cool, there's not gonna be much decay activity. And and we always tell our people not to worry about applying our product or or working to improve decay. uh, Once you get daily highs below about 50 degrees, that means your average temperature is gonna be getting close to maybe 40 degrees or less. And uh, at at that point, there's just not gonna be much activity. Um, So the, the key thing we find for trying to treat residue and speed up that decay process, the sooner it can happen after harvest, especially if you've got warmer temperatures, the more effective you're gonna be. And so uh, temperatures, the, the, se- the second critical factor, and then the last one is moisture. Typically, the m- more moisture you've got, the more decay you get. Relatively dry situation where you've only got about a half inch of rain per week. Uh, that doesn't sound dry to us right now. We've, we've been dry for about six weeks. Um, but even at a half inch of rain, Uh, In 40 days, you're only going to decay about 15 to 20% of corn residue in a situation where you've got uh, average temperatures of about 65 degrees. If you increase that to about an inch and a half of rain available per week, you're going to get about 45% of your residue. So you're going to, that decay rate more or less triples. And then if you could get a very wet situation where you had roughly three inches of rain available per week, average temperatures, corn residue will break down about 80% in 40 days. So more moisture, more better. Uh, If the soil top two, three inches is bone dry, there's not going to be any decay. The Residue uh, microbes are going to retreat it into the soil. Uh, They're going to be present in very small numbers. So the residue is going to sit there until it gets enough moisture to decay. Uh, That's why we tell people in a dry year, if you're experiencing drought right now, you probably want to wait uh, on applying a product like ours to increase residue decay because there simply won't be much decay. Uh, wait till later in the fall if you get some rainfall or wait till you've had some snowfall over winter uh, because the moisture is also critical. Of course, too much moisture can be a problem as well. If you start to saturate the soil, then the aerobic microbes that are involved in decay can't operate, they need oxygen. And so once the soil is saturated, you still will get decay, but it's going to be anaerobic or without oxygen microbes involved. They're much less efficient. They work slowly, they multiply slowly, and they're inefficient and tend to release more of that carbon to the atmosphere and less of it goes into the soil where you want it. So you definitely don't want an anaerobic situation, can't really control that um other than trying to improve the air and and water percolation through your soil Um, things like no-till farming cover crops anything else you can do to reduce compaction improve air and water movement through the soil is going to help the residue decay as well Uh, so those are other factors about the only additional factor that has an impact um, is soil ph if you've got a fairly acidic soil microbes don't like that, and they're going to multiply and work uh, in smaller numbers and more slowly. But um, if you can get close to 6.87, somewhere in the neutral range, that's going to be more beneficial, and and you're going to have more microbial activity, and more decay is going to happen faster. But uh, really, the moisture, temperature, and the carbon nitrogen ratio determine how quickly you're going to be able to decay residue in the field whether it's corn stalks wheat stubble soybeans anything else Um, they all basically are are driven by those three factors ideally the soil moisture content should be about 60 to 80 percent of its water holding capacity to get maximum decay Uh, so it does depend on your soil as to uh, what its water holding capacity is Uh, Sandier soils are gonna have slower residue decay because it can't hold as much moisture. Uh, Loams and clays are gonna be able to hold more until they get saturated, and then you're gonna drown out those microbes and you're gonna switch to anaerobic decay, which which is slower and less efficient. So um, more moisture, more better usually, but but there is a limit to that as well. Second thing we wanna talk about is how much residue is out there. Um, the old standby we used to use for years when we were dealing with lower corn yields was about five tons per acre, but, but that's good for about 150 bushels um, of yield. Yeah, so if you have poor soils, you're in, in, a, in a climate that's not as conducive to corn production or you have weather problems that end up with a short year, uh, you might be closer to five. Um, pushing with modern hybrids, good weather, and you're, you're getting over 200 bushels of corn, you're probably in the, in the 10 ton range of dry matter. So that's uh, without moisture in the residue, how much dry matter do I have? Uh, of course, soybeans produce a lot less and the small grains uh, produce a lot less volume than corn. So you, you typically don't hear as much about soybean residue because it's there in low volume and it's got a relatively low carbon nitrogen ratio. There's plenty of nitrogen there and you'll be able to feed those microbes, support their life systems, and the decay of soybean residue is going to occur very quickly. Uh, Oat and wheat straw are not there in large volume, but they've got a very high carbon nitrogen ratio, and they're going to have to find that nitrogen somewhere. If it's not present, the immobilization is going to kick in. Uh, You're not only going to lock up nutrients, but it's going to take a long time to decay those residues, uh, even though they're not present in large volume. We can get a a more refined estimate, and and again, we'll focus on corn residue because that's where most of the problem is, most of the concerns we hear. Uh, One very rough rule of thumb based on yield is you're gonna have about 60 pounds of dry matter residue per bushel. So if you have a 200 bushel yield times 60, that gives you 12,000 pounds or six tons of residue. We can refine that a little bit by adjusting for test weight and moisture content And again we're worried about dry matter residue. The idea here is that if I take my dry matter yield for grain, how much corn do I have uh, in terms of pounds or tons after adjusting for test weight and moisture? The one for one rule says I'm going to have just as much residue as I produced grain. So if I had a 200 bushel yield, 58 pound test weight, that tells me how many pounds of corn I had. I can divide by one minus my moisture percentage. So if I harvested at 16%, I'll divide by 0.84, and that tells me I had closer to seven tons of residue. So we can refine that based on what your field conditions were at harvest. Um, We won't talk about the small grain residues in detail, but just as as a rough guideline, wheat, oats, rye, Produce more residue than one-for-one. One. You're going to get about 30% more residue than you had dry grain yield because there's less grain relative to the amount of residue that's produced, um, the tillers and the stalks and the other things uh, left over after uh, small grain harvest. So you could basically use this one-for-one one rule, figure out your wheat yield, multiply by the test weight, adjust for the moisture, and then increase that by 30% to get an idea about how much dry matter residue you'd have in in a wheat field. Um, Corn's one for one. The small grains produce a little bit more uh, residue relative to the grain yield. Uh, We can also refine this by by adjusting for the height of the crop and the stock quality. Usually you get about half a ton to one and a half tons per foot of corn residue uh, per stock height. Uh, The half end, it would be drought damaged. Um, Corn with fairly light stock quality would be about a ton per foot. And if you've got moderate stock quality, you're talking about uh, sort of typical numbers, would be 1.2 tons per foot. And if you've got very heavy stock quality, you're going to get about 1.4 tons per foot. So if I've got sort of typical corn, 10 foot tall, I might have as much as 12 tons. Uh, The height rule is going to give you a, a higher estimate. But between the one-for-one and the height-based rules, you get a a fairly good range of of numbers for how much residue you're dealing with in, in the field on a tonnage basis. From that, we can figure out how many pounds of nutrient I've got available in the residue, multiply the tonnage by the pounds of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium per ton. On corn residue, we're basically dealing with about 20 pounds of nitrogen per ton and about as much potassium. There is still some phosphorus. A lot of that was removed in the grain, but you'll still get about five pounds per ton of phosphorus. But uh, most of the residue nutrient content is going to be nitrogen and potassium. If you know you got about 10 tons out there, you can count on having roughly 200 pounds of nitrogen, uh, roughly 50 pounds of phosphorus, and somewhere in the 200 pound range on the, on the potash side. That not only helps you for nutrient planning for the next crop, but it also can tell you uh, am I going to be short on nitrogen? When it comes time for uh, the decay process, will I immobilize some of those nutrients or do I have enough available? So one of the first questions we always get is, should I be adding additional nitrogen and how much should I add? Uh, Basically, it depends on that carbon nitrogen ratio compared with how much nitrogen I have in the residue. Uh, I'm going to tie up that nitrogen if the microbes need more than is available in the, in the corn stalks that are out there. How much carbon enters the soil can be determined by figuring out your dry matter poundage. So DM is dry matter pounds, 12,000 pounds per acre. Um, if you think you're going to decay half of that, the PCT value there is the percentage of the residue you think you're going to decay. So if you're going to get half, Um, I've got 12,000 pounds out there. Half of it I'm going to decay. That gets me down to 6,000 pounds of residue. 40% of the crop residue is carbon. So if I've got 6,000 pounds, 40% of that's carbon. Two-thirds is going to be lost. I'm only going to recapture a third of the carbon uh, in the soil so then I multiply by a third. And then we know that once I have the carbon number, I can divide that by eight because I'm going to need one pound of nitrogen for eight pounds of carbon to uh, multiply and and reproduce those microbes and build new ones to help with decay. So that's going to determine the the amount of biomass nitrogen required for the decay activity. For example, uh, suppose I got a cornfield with nine tons of residue at 20 pounds of nitrogen per ton. I've got about 180 pounds of N out there in my corn stalks. If I'm gonna decay about half of that in the next week based on my moisture and temperature conditions, I'm gonna generate about 1200 pounds of of biomass carbon entering the soil. Uh, So my nine tons of residue, uh, half of that's gonna be decayed. So I'm gonna have four and a half tons. 40% of that is gonna be carbon And then a third of that's gonna go back into the soil. That's where I get the 1200 pounds. Then I divide the 1200 by eight to tell me that I'm gonna need about 150 pounds of nitrogen per acre to decay half of that residue. I've only got 90 available, half of the 180 that's in that residue. So I'm gonna be 60 short. Roughly 60 pounds per acre is gonna be immobilized or locked up until I get that decay process completed. If you add more nitrogen, depends on what you're going to do. If I'm going to put in a legume cover crop after my corn and it's going to produce its own nitrogen, the lockup may not be a problem. Uh, if I'm not going to wait and do anything until spring, in which I put most of my nitrogen on early in the spring, tying up what's available in the fall may not be an issue because there'll be plenty of nitrogen available from your next application before you plant the next crop. Maybe I'm going to plant a grass cover crop, something, that a small grain like annual rye. Maybe I do need nitrogen for that. So if I'm going to tie up 60 pounds, uh, and that's really going to limit the availability for the, the annual rye crop in the fall, I might have to put on some in order to help the decay process, make up for this mobilization, and make sure that I've got enough available for my cover crop. So whether you add additional nitrogen or not depends on how much is going to be locked up and whether you really need that immobilized nitrogen or not uh, for the next crop, whether it's a cover crop or or something you're going to do in the spring. Uh, Hey, maybe I'm going to raise beans in the spring. I don't need that much nitrogen, and and so uh, the immobilization may not really be a factor. Second question we get a lot is what about adding sugar? There are a number of companies out promoting um, applications of table sugar or molasses, other, other sugar sources to help with decay. Uh, the sugar contains carbon, and so it, and it's readily available. It breaks down in the soil very quickly. The carbon is, is immediately available almost to help support increased microbial life, and it will help break down residue because it's providing that car- carbon fuel for the microbes. But there's no nitrogen in sugar. So basically what you're doing is increasing your carbon-nitrogen ratio out in the field, making it a tougher job for those microbes to break down if there's not enough nitrogen available. So you're either going to have a bigger lockup problem, more immobilization, or you're going to have to add nitrogen to balance out the sugar. From from our experience, you're better off to avoid that problem and not increase your carbon nitrogen ratio, but try to speed up that residue decay process in other ways. Uh, So, Sugar can help but in another sense it it can also make the job bigger and slow down the decay process if you don't have enough nitrogen to support the microbial regrowth that that sugar is going to try to promote. BT corn, we get this all the time. The guys here at No-Till Farmer had sent out an an article a couple of weeks ago about BT corn. Uh, Almost everybody agrees that BT corn stalks are harder. It contains almost twice as much lignin um, the agronomists generally all agree on that. Does it take longer to decay? You talk to a lot of farmers and they believe so. Lignin is more difficult to break down. So there is a good argument to be made that it would take longer to break down, but also the carbon nitrogen ratios not really much different from BT to non-BT corn. So looking at carbon nitrogen relationships, it, it should take about the same time. And, and the study that Daryl and John and the guys here at No-Till Farmer distributed, showed that there really wasn't much difference between the decay rate of BT and non-BT corn. Uh, There are several other studies done in the last 10 to 15 years that report the same thing. Uh, Interestingly, there are almost as many studies that show that BT corn does take longer. And the, the most recent articles um, by some of the more careful researchers point out that there are a lot of other factors that are probably influencing these results, whether you see a difference or not. Um, the lignin content is, is not really a big difference. Um, it's probably driven by something else. Some cases, BT corn has smaller residue quantities than, BT, than non-BT corn. You're going to get more stalk and more, more height, in particular, out of non-BT varieties there could be differences in, in insect infestations and, and stock quality based on insect feeding, um, all sorts of other things that can't be controlled from one experiment to another, uh, moisture content, temperature, the, the initial level of biological activity in the field or the lab wherever this research has been done. And so the bottom line is it, it it's really hard to say whether BT corn takes longer to decay, and, and most of the evidence points to no it doesn't take longer to decay. It is harder, but it it basically has the same carbon-nitrogen relationship and it probably takes about as long. Most of the variation you see is probably due to these other factors like temperature and moisture and biological activity. Very quickly, we did want to talk about our approach to the problem. We market a product called Chandler BioCat 1000. Like all of the other products we we market for Chandler, they're enzyme-based. Um, ours is unique. There's, there are other enzyme, or there are other biological treatments for residue on the market, but uh, most of them uh, use live bacteria and other cultures in the treatment. Ours is enzyme-based, which, which means it works on all of those microbes, the fungus, the actinomycetes, the bacteria. It's designed to increase their reproduction and, uh, and, and their activity, so you get a broader spectrum increase in your microbial activity in the field Uh, the product includes enzymes and amino acids all of those nitrogen based things that are required to help support the life functions of the microbes so you have uh, fewer problems with tie up it doesn't contain some of those other micronutrients that are required they're chelated so they're available and the product also has a natural surfactant to help it spread across the residue and get down to the soil layers so even if you're not incorporating your residue. Uh, In a no-till situation, it's going to work into the soil surface and get those microbes uh, going where where they're starting from, uh, the top two or three inches of the soil. By multiplying those microbes and getting them working faster, you can get through that immobilization phase, complete the decay process faster, and start to release more of those nutrients for the next crop, whether it's a cover crop or, or a next cash crop in the spring. Um, We've had very good results over the past several years as long as you're in a situation where you've got adequate moisture, adequate temperature, and there's not something else in the field that's going to be inhibiting biological life, Um, pH problems, stuff like that. But as as long as you've got moisture, temperature, and the enzymes can help the microbes do their work, you you can decay residue pretty quickly.
0: Thanks again to agronomist Doug Miller for sharing the science behind residue breakdown, the factors that can impact the speed of residue breakdown, and the value you can gain from proper residue breakdown. And thanks to TopCon Agriculture for making this podcast series possible. We'll be back with our next episode in the No-Till Farmer podcast series on Friday, October 27th. If you enjoyed learning from Doug on all the details of residue breakdown, You might want to visit the No-Till Farmer website at notillfarmer.com to view a webinar and slide presentation from Doug. Scroll over the resources link on the menu bar toward the top of the homepage and click on webinars. You'll find more details and slides to review from Doug's webinar entitled, Managing Soil Biology for Faster Crop Residue Decay. That originally aired on September 10th, 2013. Again, thanks to our sponsor TopCon Agriculture for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest No-Till Farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page and on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R. For Doug Miller, TopCon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Executive Editor Darrell Brugink. Thanks for listening.